production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Darielle Snipes, a reporter and producer at IdeaStream. It is my pleasure to introduce and moderate today's forum, a conversation on right to counsel initiatives in housing courts for tenants facing eviction. Earlier this year, the Northeast Ohio community came together through the One Community Reads program to read Evicted, Poverty and Profit in an American City by Matthew Desmond. The cycle of eviction and poverty presented in the book spawned many conversations in Northeast Ohio as leaders and activists alike came together to identify possible solutions to reduce the number of evictions and improve access to safe, stable housing for our most vulnerable residents. One of those potential solutions is the right to counsel in housing court. Although our Constitution guarantees access to counsel in criminal cases, there is no such guarantee in civil cases. In 2017, New York was the first state to pass right to counsel legislation, leveling the playing field in housing court, where landlords are actually required to be represented by legal counsel. In June 2018, San Francisco also passed the right to counsel law for housing court. Several other cities, including Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, Newark, and Philadelphia have implemented programs to increase legal representation for low-income tenants. In Cleveland, the Legal Aid Society is leading the advocacy for the implementation of a similar program here. Today we're going to talk to members of both New York City Council and Cleveland City Council about the right to counsel legislation, how it works, why it works, and where Cleveland is in the development. Joining me from New York City is Councilwoman Vanessa L. Gibson, council member representing the District 16, which is the Bronx, and Mark Levine, council member representing District 7, the Upper West Side of Manhattan in New York. Joining us from Cleveland City Council are Councilman Tony Brancatelli, representing Ward 12, which includes Slavic Village, the parts of Tremont, Brooklyn Center as well, and old Brooklyn neighborhoods, and Council President Kevin Kelly, who represents Ward 13, which is also old Brooklyn. Please welcome the panel today. So Council President Kelly, I want to start with you and let's start with why a tenant may be evicted and what they can do and what that can do to a family once they are evicted. Uh, thank you. People are evicted for numerous reasons, um, but where the, where the imbalance comes to the system of justice is when a low-income person faces this eviction, this life-altering event, without representation when there is representation generally on the other side. Um, and what does that mean to the Cleveland community? Well, all too often that means that if a, if a family is evicted, a child will have to go to a separate school. Um, and if there are approximately nine to 10,000 evictions in Cleveland um, in a given year, 
what does that, how many families are affected and how many children are affected? So we needed to look at not just the issue of um, what does it do to that child? That's certainly significant. What happens to that child when their family's evicted? But how then do we expect the teacher to teach that class when we have the number of children going from school to school on any given day and week? And then what does that do to the, to the teaching environment, to the learning environment? And you know, we've spent enough time in this community you know, talking about solutions for the Clean Municipal School District, but if there's 9,000 families on the move that are, that are in this district, we need to look at what is the effect on, on the, the individual, the family, and the, and the community, the person's job, and the, you know, the, the choices that, a, that a, a tenant needs to make to just first attend the, evicted, excuse me, attend the eviction hearing. Uh, it's really just something that is a, it's a multifaceted problem. There's as many reasons as people face um, eviction, there's as many problems that result from it. And so Councilman Brancatelli, just walk me through the research that you have with the eviction process. What goes through the eviction process? And my understanding is even though you have, you may win that eviction notice in court, it still stays on your record, so then it's harder for a person to even get further housing future. So just walk me through that process. So I, I have a little background. I, I was a director of nonprofit for nearly 20 years and we manage some 500 scattered site housing units. Um, and the eviction process is very complicated, and certainly notification, and there's a lot of causes for eviction that uh, are right and just, and, and uh, the landlord certainly has a lot of responsibility, but he has the right to control his property. Um, but the process itself is very, uh, it makes families very vulnerable. Um, between the notification, as the council president talked about, just getting to housing court itself is a challenge. Um, when you have to park in what's known in Cleveland as the pit, because there's not good parking at the Justice Center. Nope. Um, it's not easy to get to, and in days like today, when you're walking across icy uh, sidewalks, not the streets, because we've done a good job of plowing and salting, <laughs> um, but, the, uh, um, but it's, it's a, a challenge, and so you have your first hearing, and you have cause, and then you uh, get a three-day notice. There's all these different steps along the way um, that really makes it very challenging for some of our most vulnerable families um, and as you're going through that process, now you have the stigma. Now you have an eviction on your record. Um, and I think the number was something like 70% of the families in Cleveland don't even show up to court, um, which is just astounding because they've already been defeated in their own mind, so they don't even come to court. Many of the landlords, um, I, I think it's something like 70% of the landlords in Cleveland, 90% nationally, have an attorney present. Um, so when you're going to a court and you have an attorney present, that gives you a significant amount of standing. So now that we're having this, these tenants with an eviction record, we all know in public da uh, data today, people are mining this kind of data all the time. So if you're applying for a job, applications by the thousands come in for to be a target employee, and they screen them and dump them out without even looking at that record. The same thing is happening with tenants. These national screening services are out there. You have an eviction on your record, and that means you're not going to be able to get the next apartment unless you're at the sub-market. And that's the problem that we're facing today, and that's why we look at opportunities like sealing records and being able to give a little more protection even after you've gone through uh, an eviction. But working with our local housing court judge who does a great job is like, how do we how do we protect some of these families that have gone through this? And Councilman Levin, um, while legal rep representation happens for criminal cases, um, don't you feel that it should be a fundamental right in civil cases as well? Absolutely. And first, just let me thank you uh, and thank the City Club for having us here. It's such a, a thrill for Vanessa and me to be able to share our experience in New York uh, with Cleveland, which is clearly on the cutting edge. And I have to tell you, council member, walking over here this morning, these were some of the most immaculately salted <laughs> and plowed streets I've ever seen. I'm going to tell the New York City mayor he's being outdone. You're guaranteed re-election, so don't worry about that. Uh, 
<laughs> Look, this, this really is uh, a question of justice. There's no justice in any proceeding if someone is facing a life-altering judgment, if one side has an attorney and the other side does not. Now, that's why if someone faces incarceration, we make sure both sides have an attorney. We've, we've taken care of that in the criminal courts for 50 years. But that should also be true for someone in immigration court facing deportation and family court facing loss of custody of their children. It should be true for a homeowner facing a foreclosure. And it should definitely be true for a tenant who is facing eviction. And for decades in housing courts in New York, in Cleveland, pretty much everywhere in the country, this has not been a level playing field because almost every uh, landlord has had an attorney and very, very, very few tenants have. In New York City, before we started our work mm -hmm. to establish right to counsel, 1% of tenants had a, an attorney and over 95% of landlords did. And I understand in, in Cleveland today, it's not much better than that, maybe one to 2%. One to 2%. So there's no fairness, period. And, and we should all be outraged by that. And you know who knows that? The landlords. And so they have built a business model which uses housing court as a weapon, knowing that in most cases, there's not going to be a fair fight. And we have seen in New York City, it's incredible, but a, a tenant just shows up with an attorney and the landlord drops the case. Oh, they weren't counting on that. OK. So clearly, they are, they are filing um, eviction uh, cases, which are very, very weak because of this uneven playing field. And now that we have created the right to counsel in New York, it's a whole new world. And we'll talk more about some of the incredible um, changes in eviction rates and other outcomes we're seeing. But I'll tell you that landlords are filing fewer eviction cases already in New York because it's a changed playing field. And this is a powerful lesson that I hope uh, Cleveland can adopt and we're just excited to share our views with you today. Well, thank you. And Councilwoman Gibson, just talk, you guys, it was introduced a year ago, it was enacted a year ago. Tell, talk to me about the changing face of housing court in the last year in New York. Sure, and so I'm grateful to be here too. I also got here safely, thank you. <laughs> thank you, thank you City Club, and really thank you Legal Aid for all of the work you've done. Um, it's an honor to be here on behalf of New York. Uh, Mark and I are grateful. Um, we truly believe that access to affordable and quality housing it should be a fundamental right, not a luxury. And we started this movement back in 2014 um, after we were both re-elected to the City Council in New York in 2013. And it started with the basic premise that a lot of tenants were going through an incredible amount of exploitation and harassment from landlords. They were facing eviction and all sorts of cases where they were being denied basic services like heat and hot water. And a lot of tenants were going through this and they didn't know where to turn. And many of the housing advocacy groups, a lot of tenant groups in New York City, started to mobilize and represent many of these tenants in housing court. And we started with the idea of making sure that something could be done. What could we possibly do to make sure that tenants get legal representation? As Mark mentioned, in criminal cases, you're guaranteed a lawyer. But when you go to housing court, you go by yourself. And tenant advocates knew that you can have a tool and a weapon at your disposal if you got a lawyer. And so we came together and decided that the best way to do that would be to codify something in local law. 
So already in New York City, we had started providing funding to civil legal service providers for anti-legal, uh, anti-eviction cases and legal services. That was already a start, but it was nowhere what we envisioned could be a larger um, solution. And we thought the best way was a legislative process because we wanted to make sure that whatever we did, we could codify it in local law. And we introduced the legislation, it was intro 214 in 2014, and that really started our process. And we thought that it was best to not only get tenants, voices at the table, the advocates and all of the stakeholders, but we started to mobilize a lot of other people, like faith-based leaders, members of the clergy, because their members were facing eviction too and harassment from landlords. We said we wanted to make sure that the circle was large, but it was diverse. And yes, it started out very small, but we had a big, big grandiose idea. And I said it earlier uh, today and yesterday, we envisioned honestly that we wanted to say to everyone, you get a lawyer, you get a lawyer, you get a lawyer, you get a lawyer, we all get lawyers. Because we truly believe that tenants deserved that because a lot of tenants had gone through so much. They struggled in silence and darkness and we believe that by guaranteeing them a free lawyer, it would not only send a message to a housing court and to landlords that we meant business, but we also knew that it would be a way to stop evictions in its track. And Councilman Levin, how does, how does it work? So if someone is, it gets a notice for eviction, can they call 311 and then legal representation happens at that time or will there be legal representation when they get to court? Like how much legal representation do they get? Is it carte blanche or is it just for an hour, a day? What is it in, in New York All City? All great questions. And do you have 311 here as well? 211. 211. Two two yeah. <laughs> well, we, we, our law um, focuses on low income tenants, which we defined as 200% of the poverty rate. Um, but cautionary tale for Cleveland, that turns out to exclude a lot of people who are in need, partly because the poverty rate, which is set by the federal government, is incredibly low, and they're very stingy about increasing it. And so um, with minimum wage rising, we're losing uh, a lot of tenants who should be covered. So we encourage you to think long and hard about who should be covered. Um, the system right now doesn't connect you to an attorney until you are inside of housing court. And uh, we actually are trying to fix that. Um, it does put the tenant at a disadvantage because landlords are crafty and they're changing their game based on the new law and they're waiting outside in front of housing court in the morning talking to tenants in line before the tenant has met with their attorney and they're making unfavorable offers to them which tenants are intimidated into signing because they don't know there's a lawyer waiting for them upstairs. But for those who do get up there, uh, they're connected to a legal aid provider who takes on their case for free and it has such an impact to have an attorney who knows the system, who knows the law, who might know the judge and we have seen in our first year that 84% of the tenants who have an attorney through this program are staying in their homes. So you can applaud for that, absolutely. <laughs> so, Every one of those is a human story where a family, as opposed to being out on the street, mm -hmm. is in their home with avoiding all the impacts that you talked about with public health and losing a job and the kids being disrupted in their schools. Um, and already we're seeing that fewer people are entering the shelter system, mm -hmm. citing eviction as the cause. So the impact is real 
and, uh, and we're just getting going. Great, congratulations. Okay, well, Councilman Bracatelli, let's talk about Cleveland. Um, you know, a lot of the, the practices of landlords that are happening in New York City are happening here in Cleveland. But can you talk about the changing face of landlords um, post-recession? Yeah, it's, it's a significant change, and I'll, I'll show my personal stories of um, growing up, uh, I was, we have many addresses. Um, and uh, growing up in a low-income family, um, my parents were divorced young, um, and uh, uh, one of the parts of the evicted book talks about um, hypes for hire, uh, people willing to work, and, and I, I have to admit, my brother and I, when we were renting in a very uh, affordable unit, um, we're out there working on houses, and I didn't know changing locks at 2 o'clock in the morning wasn't the right thing to do when, uh, when we were told, okay, go change the locks, and we did it. Um, but the difference, there's a significant difference of uh, landlords today than landlords from 30 or 40 years ago. Um, landlords then were part of the neighborhood, part of the community. You knew where they were at. They had a storefront. Um, you didn't see the churning of people moving out of neighborhoods, and you didn't see the disruption of the social fabric as much in the neighborhood. Today you have not, uh, landlords who are bulk holders. You have landlords that are corporate owners. Significantly different. The foreclosure crisis has been very cruel to neighborhoods like Slavic Village. When you look at a neighborhood that turned over 30, 40 percent, um, within that particular neighborhood, the landlords are pretty faceless. We have uh, folks here from Baypack and who are dealing with bulk holders, but they hide behind their corporate name, and they're no longer part of a community, and they are just churning and turning over families at a rapid race, rap at a rapid rate. So it is significantly different today than it was maybe 40 or 50 years ago, which is why in schools like Slavic Village, you'll see an elementary school of 400 kids turn 30 to 40 percent of that school in one year in and out of that particular school when I didn't lose 30% of my entire years of, of school. So it's um, the change of a landlord today uh, is significantly more corporate or it's people who are bulk holders or buying that don't live in the community, don't live in the state, and sometimes don't live in the country, which is much more challenging to get them into the courts. I understand. And Council President, um, here in Cleveland, we don't have a program just yet working on it. Um, you and Councilman Brancantelli um, are among the other council members that are working with the legal aid to get that program here, doing research, visiting other cities, talking to other council people um, in other cities. What are your takeaways from other cities like a DC, like a Philly, a San Francisco, or a Los Angeles, I'm sorry, that um, the main takeaway is that every city is different, and there's there's different models that um, are are more and less effective. Um, and I think we need to look at you know what is the right model for the city of Cleveland. One um, premise that seems to hold everywhere is that you know brief advice is not as good as having an attorney standing next to uh, the defendant in court. Like that is where we need to be, so that that it is truly an. Um, an even playing field when you have an attorney with you, not just kind of giving you the ins and outs of what housing court would look like. But I would I would suggest that you know of, of all this, when you look at other cities, um, you know sometimes you just got to take a step back and, and, and look at it from a broader level. Is that it's almost hopefully in ten years we'll look back as like almost a surreal conversation that that this once existed. Um, we talk about homelessness. Um, we talk about um, the churning of kids and kids being displaced from schools people losing jobs, people either going to shelters or couch surfing, and we just have to make a decision that are those conditions that we as a community are comfortable with? Or is it something that we want to take a giant step towards, towards you know, relieving some of those harms, some of that, that pain that people go through just be, by the very fact that they are low income? Um, I would guess that most people that are at this lunch sitting in this room, if they were faced with a foreclosure complaint or an eviction notice, they wouldn't go to housing court unrepresented. So why is it okay that most low-income people go to housing court unrepresented? And we as policymakers, we need to get out of the habit of thinking about 
what's good for other people and other people's children, and we need to look at, is this good enough for me and for my children and my family? And I think if you look at why we're doing this, that's where it all kind of starts. Why are we, why do we continue to talk about homelessness? Why do we continue to talk about uh, the journey of kids to clean public schools without like really taking a serious step towards doing something? And especially when this is just a, I think everybody understands the justice aspect of this when you apply it to the criminal um, you know, right, right to counsel. Well, if you're gonna lose your house, that's a, that's a significant thing. You, you, we should, as a community, not tolerate this condition and, and the resulting condition. I think if you start there, then we start looking at the models and the academic piece, and how do we apply that to Cleveland? And that's, that's the direction that I, that I hope we will go, and I hope we can all reconvene in a, a year and have this problem, you know, uh, taking major steps towards solving it. And I'll throw this question out to either you or Councilman Brancatelli, but uh, you know, eviction necessarily isn't always about money or lack of payment. Sometimes it's an intimidation factor if you're living in substandard housing. And here in Cleveland, we have a huge lead crisis. And you know, if a tenant is complaining about chipping paint, they have a small child worried about lead poisoning, they could get a, an eviction notice because the landlord doesn't want to deal with that. Um, do you hope that the, having a program implemented here in Cleveland will change that and will also help move us forward with the crisis of lead? Yeah, I would, I would, I would suggest that um, that's exactly a, a significant point of having right to counsel. Um, when you're talking about the conditions of some of the families that are living in, um, I just had an incident uh, last week where I had a family across from living across from a school that moved into a condemned home. They put together a thousand dollars to put down uh, to be able to rent for that first month in security deposit. Then the home was condemned. It didn't have electricity. It didn't have gas, and it didn't have water. Um, and the conditions that they moved into. Uh, an eight-month pregnant woman along with their young child and the mother, it was horrific. It was horrific. And the conditions of peeling paint, the environmental substandard alone um, was just deplorable. By having continuing to raise the standard is raising the standard for all the landlords. It's a matter of improving the quality of the real estate, improving the market. It's not just a matter of being punitive and improving the health of the families that are moving in there. I think this is a step to say, listen, when we have basic standards like warm, safe, and dry, for you to have a rental property, that means you're not going to have peeling paint. That means you're going to have heat that works. You're going to have water that works, toilets that flush, sinks that don't overflow. And that's going to improve the housing stock overall. It's going to be the call to change the culture of landlords to understand we have a significant number of high-quality landlords. When we look at the most recent study around lead poisoning, we saw some of the best landlords that are Section 8 families, CMHA family vouchers that are out there. We have uh, places like Cleveland Housing Network that has, has an impeccable record around their housing. Um, that show that just through maintenance that you can really make the environment for families much better and you're going to lower lead poisoning. You're going to improve the quality of life in those families. If I could add to that, um, many people don't know their rights as a tenant. Um, and if they do know their rights, what they're entitled to, what the, what the landlord is required by law to provide, if you do know that, um, you may not have the, the wherewithal and the time to go to housing court and put your rent in escrow and, and do those things um, that are gonna take away from your job. A lot of the people we're talking about are, are hustling to put food on the table. They're not blocking out time to go down to housing court and set up their escrow account and writing demand letters to their, to their tenants. It's, it's just, they're hustling to feed their kids and put food on the table and keep their jobs. So we have to, if something like this will go a long way towards, I believe, better landlord behavior, knowing that, that there will be, that they can't just you know, evict somebody and not think that they're not going to show up with somebody that says, you know, your roof is leaking, there's no hot water, um, and 
you know, th this tenant has rights. So I think it's going to change how we, how we do business in terms of um, the, the, the housing court, who files evictions when, and just the, you know, they will think more about filing or evicting a tenant. They will make sure that, the, that their property is up to code and then they're meeting all their responsibilities as landlord before they file that eviction. Of the 2% of, um, of the landlords that do show up with attorneys, 90% of them have resolution. And resolution can be giving them time to move someplace, could be um, helping coordinate getting back rent, or it could be making repairs to the home that give them the stops a leaky roof, et cetera. When you land in housing court in the city of Cleveland, we're blessed we have a municipal court that is incredibly compassionate. They have the resources and they have the staff that will take the time and work with a tenant and say, all right, how do we get some rent for you? Okay, how do we get the landlord to de deposit and get some repairs for you? Um, so we have a very compassionate court. We just need to connect it and that's what Right to Council will help do. And so the council members from New York, um, were there any roadblocks from uh, la from landlords or from lawyers um, about this about this program? Roadblocks. <laughs> <laughs> That's an understatement. Well, the first roadblock was the administration. I mean, the mayor and a lot of the commissioners from Human Resources and Homeless Services, they were not on board with this. Like I said, they believed in the concept and the idea and why we wanted to do this, but they were nowhere near ready to agree to funding something. And, you know, we knew that we would get it done. We just knew there would be a lot of battles. And we looked at a possible phase-in over several years, and we knew it would be costly. But what we did was we compiled data. We looked at research. We looked at eviction rates. We looked at concentrations in communities of color, in low-income neighborhoods, in immigrant communities. And we said, in New York City, it costs about forty-five dollars to $50,000 per year to house a family in a shelter. But yet, if you give them a free lawyer for a year, it's only $2,500 a year. And so we looked at a lot of fiscal uh, experts and other organizations and had them compile data on how much money the city would save. And when we got those numbers, I mean, they were exorbitant in terms of how much we're talking about millions and millions of dollars the city of New York potentially could save if they invested in free lawyers. So we had the data on our side, we had the people, and we started mobilizing. And eventually, with enough pressure, after press conferences and rallies and demonstrations and petitions, we got the mayor of New York City to agree that this is exactly what we wanted to do. Great. And Councilman Levin, mm -hmm. so in Philly, the city invested $3.5 million to provide legal assistance to all tenants unable to afford representation, avoiding $45.2 million in cost to the city annually. So what is the cost savings that's happened in New York in the last year? Well, this question of, of the financial impact is so huge mm -hmm. because uh, during the multi-year fight that we are engaged in, we just had this thrown back at us again and again. We can't afford it, we can't afford it, we can't afford it. Um, in, in part, we were able to break through um, with um, a very robust financial model created by an outside firm. It's called Stout. I think they have a representative here. You can raise your hand if you want. Hopefully, they'll do one for Cleveland, and some of you will pay for it. Um, but uh, I, I'm not going to repeat what's been said here, but eviction and homelessness costs the city a lot of money. Mm -hmm. It costs more to educate a homeless child. It uh, might mean that a parent loses their job, and so they're not paying taxes. Uh, the impact is just huge. Of course, if you land in a homeless shelter as well. Um, another key ingredient, of breaking, a key ingredient for us of breaking through the resistance was we expanded the coalition way beyond the people who you would think. This was not just tenant advocates and legal aid providers. We had faith-based leaders. Uh, we had labor leaders. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, one of the, the, the biggest advocate communi communities was seniors and the AARP, which saw this as a core issue for them. We got people who cared about the school saying, we can't have our kids' education disrupted by this. We had people who do employment training saying, if, if you know, my students have to move an hour and a half away to a shelter, they're going to drop out of the program. And it just became such a broad coalition, it became irresistible. And, and what, is, what is a never-ending source of, um, I'll say, amusement for us, is all the haters who were opposing this now run around the city talking about what a great success it is <laughs> and how proud they are that New York City's in the lead. So that's okay. We're all right. As, as, as long as the bill got passed, it's all good. <coughs> so do you have a dollar amount, though? I mean, or do you have any quantitative numbers? Well, the, 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 the upfront cost in New York, it's a big city, okay? So it's, it's a little bit bigger than, than Cleveland. Um, Just a little. It's $200 million up front. But our analysis shows that that money, potentially by a factor of two, will be made up on the back end through the savings. So we actually use the term investment. This isn't about spending. It's about investing in our people and getting back um, not just human benefit, but also savings and expenses um, in a way that does make this financially prudent. Just a, just a comment on that. Um, they've described very well the, the art and science of politics at the, in terms of getting things done and, and these things. So that was, it's very impressive that, that they were able to get this done. But uh, it, it, it kind of saddens me that, and I know it's very important to make the, the financial case, and, and it's good that that happens. But, you know, ultimately people want to know what it'll cost. And I think that, you know, that we need to, like, make a decision of what our values are in the community and, you know, what's the cost of one child that, that isn't properly educated? What, what's the cost of one person? So the money is, you know, we, we fund a lot of programs that cost a whole lot of money. Um, we need to make it a decision that is this worthy of our, of our community's time and effort, and then we'll work towards the cost. Um, but, you know, we, but it, it always, it's kind of like a reaction that many people have to ask, what's it going to cost? Um, I think the question should be, what's it going to cost to do nothing? Right. Um, and that's mm -hmm. more, more where we need to start. And just to add one quick point, um, I think for a lot of us, particularly in New York City, many of our colleagues in the city council, and just broadly speaking, a lot of people didn't realize the face of homelessness. So when we started looking at data, we recognized the majority of the families that were living in shelters were employed. They had a full-time job. Mm -hmm. So it's not the notion of people being unemployed, receiving government assistance, <laughs> sitting at home all day waiting for a check, but they were working. And they were working parents, single parents working, but they fell on hard times. They really do live paycheck to paycheck. They could be potentially a victim of a domestic violence situation where they had to flee their home, but they were trying their very best to make it, and, you know, they fell on hard times. But they were working. I understand. Just, mm -hmm. a, note on, just a note on homelessness, and I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but I remember a time when, during presidential campaigns, homelessness was a big issue. Um, and as painful as it might be, um, I would ask everybody to look back on the 2016 election. Um, do you recall homelessness being brought up as an issue by either major party candidate? And I think any urban issue, cities yeah. have been forgotten at the national right. level. So I think we need to totally. refocus on <laughs> so just my two cents. So where do we stand here in Cleveland? I know legislation necessarily hasn't been introduced. There's still the research, but where do we stand? When do you, would you like to see legislation introduced, possibly? Well, I'll, I'll start, and then I'll let the council president, because he controls the pen. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we, already, we already have a good start. When okay. I look in the audience today and I see a 
half of city council there today and a lot of compassionate council members. And you got Councilman Griffin, Councilman Jones, Councilman Zone, Councilman Cleveland, um, uh, Councilman Santora in the back of the room there. We have a lot of folks who are here that realize how important this is. So that's the first big step. And, and I think what Tony said is right. We're, we're off to the right start. I, I mean, I'm, it's, it's unfortunate that we aren't, that we didn't start this decades ago, but considering where we are and we're looking, the, the fact that after this presentation, after this uh, panel, there will be a presentation by Case Western Reserve on where the study is so far. We do need as much as I'd rather we'd done. We, we do need some academic um, backup, some data to, to guide the, the steps we take. But I am optimistic that we can um, begin phase one of this in 2019. And we're already, we've already started, and uh, Legal Aid has been amazing, along with the, the students and their uh, academic research they're doing now. They're interviewing uh, tenants who are coming out of court. They're getting a lot of the data and research together now. It's been pretty um, telling to see the tenant reaction and what they're facing. It's also been pretty telling to see the landlords seeing the tenants that are being interviewed. Um, mm -hmm. There have been a few conflicts in the hallways out there, um, but for the most part, uh, no bloody noses yet. Um, but it's uh, the, the first piece of the research is being done and, and uh, the data has been accumulated. Perfect. And just, um, we're going to get to the questions in just a second, but do you guys have any success stories or any advice to us here in Cleveland as we move forward with our program? I'll talk about two point Right. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> what we're also looking to do, where we are now in New York City, is we've completed year one, we have the data, and we've seen that evictions have been reduced by 24%, which is great for the city. And we're also seeing less filings, about 7% of a reduction in housing court. And as Mark mentioned, because it's an income eligibility program and 200% of the federal poverty level is not nearly enough, uh, we're looking at uh, 2.0, right to council 2.0. We're taking it to the next level, the next chapter, and we have already introduced legislation in the city council to raise the threshold to 400% of the federal poverty level because we want to capture more parents, more single families that are making more money, but they're still living in poverty. $15 an hour is, is where we're going, and a lot of those families are not eligible today. And we're still dealing with courtroom issues. We have capacity and space issues, uh, confidentiality and privacy with clients and attorneys. So we're dealing with that with the courts. We're talking to judges. They're amenable. Judges are actually giving us a lot of good results in what they're seeing in court. Um, you know, landlords are always creative, so we are trying to stay ahead of the curve. And then we're also looking at some other housing issues, uh, residents of public housing, we want to make sure are covered. And ultimately, some of the hitches that we have encountered, we want to try to deal with that while we're still in office. All right, Councilman Lewis. Okay, just briefly, because I'm anxious to get to questions, but uh, the power of right to counsel is not only about what it does for an individual family in one case, it's about changing the whole climate of the tenant-landlord relationship so that tenants know that they're not alone and they're gonna stand and fight if a landlord is depriving them of heat or hot water or not abating lead. Um, but they need to know they have this right. And uh, in New York City still, we're one year into this and very few tenants know it. And so uh, since this is gonna happen in Cleveland, it's gonna happen, right? Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not too soon to start thinking about questions like this. You have to make sure tenants understand they have this right. So they stand and fight for their legal rights in, mm -hmm. in taking on abusive landlords. And I don't know if that's you know, ads on the side of buses or community meetings or 
public service announcements uh, on, on public radio, mm -hmm. but start thinking now about how you can get the word mm -hmm. out so tenants know before they're in the midst of an eviction that someone will back them up. All right. Well, I'm Darielle Snipes, reporter producer for Ideastream, and today we're listening to a former forum on how the right to counsel might improve housing court. Our panelists are New York City Council members Vanessa L. Gibson, Mark Levin, and Cleveland City Councilman Anthony Bracatelli and Cleveland Council President Kevin Kelly. We're about to begin the audience question and answer. We welcome questions from everyone, city council members, guests, students, or those of you visiting via our radio broadcast or live stream. If you would like to tweet a question, please tweet at the city club. That's at the city club. And our staff will try to work that into the program. Holding the microphones today, our content coordinator, Bliss Davis, and city club intern, Remy Oronsanya. Um, may we have the first question? Uh, for council people, Gibson and uh, Levine, um, what, how did this particularly impact the foreign-born immigrants, and what were their particular needs? Yes, um, great question. Um, one of the deliberate strategies of landlords is to target immigrants who um, might really be scared if they get an eviction notice and might wrongly think that um, their documentation status could actually impact their rights in housing court. And the truth is, I assume it's the same in Cleveland, your rights as a tenant are your rights as a tenant. It doesn't matter what your citizenship status is. Um, and if, if the tenant doesn't speak English, that can only make them feel more intimidated. So what happens in a, in a heartbreakingly large number of cases is um, immigrant tenants, especially undocumented, um, just leave if they get an eviction notice. They leave their apartment rather than showing up at court. Um, and this has been made um, a lot worse by the fact that ICE is now uh, prowling some of our courts um, and are making detentions. So it is so important that particularly um, immigrants, uh, tenant, em immigrants who are tenants know that they have equal rights and that they have an attorney who will back them up in court and that they're safe going to the courthouse. That, that, that's a lot to take on. We think we're making progress on this, but if, if all tenants are vulnerable, the most vulnerable are people who um, are scared about uh, a deportation. So we have to work extra hard to reach them, and it's one of the most important rationales for doing this. Uh, good afternoon. This is uh, such an exciting um, uh, project that's gonna be happening. Uh, I'm an educator, and there's something called the school to prison pipeline. And one of the reasons that so many uh, end up in prison starts with school and attendance. And so this could really, really improve attendance mm -hmm. of children who are no longer homeless. Mm -hmm. But that's not my question. Okay. Um, my question is, you mentioned something which really stuck with me, uh, a person moving into a condemned home. What are consequences, what is the consequence for landlords or homeowners who move people into condemned homes? Is well, there a consequence? Yeah, I, um, I can speak specifically, uh, uh, building, building and housing. The city of Cleveland has an, an immense amount of laws, a number of laws uh, that prohibit um, occupying properties that are condemned, that don't have water, don't have heat. Um, but the process for getting um, that person who owns that property into court, um, the property that I was speaking of transferred four times in two years. Mm -hmm. Quick claim deed to quick claim deed to quick claim deed. 
um, but for the research of folks like Zach and at Savick Village, being able to track them down and connect them to other properties that connected them back to the same person who signed a lease that didn't own the property, um, getting that person in the court is a challenge because they don't show up to court. Um, I can't tell you how many times that the judge has been in front of no one, that we have these court cases come in and, and they don't appear because uh, building and housing files a condemnation, they file and try and drag them into court and they don't show up. That is a big problem. That's part of the facelessness that we have about folks who um, just don't even bother. So no matter whether we have right to counsel or objections to living in condemned homes, if we can't get them into court, that's a big problem, which is why I think the, the point of educating folks is a big part of that. We need to have the, the tenants feel empowered. We need to have them step forward. That person that was living in a condemned home um, with that pregnant daughter, um, I met in March or May, I forget when that was, and said, don't pay rent anymore. I told her, don't pay rent anymore. Um, they don't own the house, the property's condemned, save your money, go someplace else to live, and five months later, they're still in the same house, and that was the unfortunate part of what we had to deal with, but it was that lack of empowerment that they had, they did, felt no power, and they stayed in that house until finally it got so despairing that they, they moved out. Uh, why would they have to, uh, the child have to uh, change schools if he was evicted, if the parents were evicted? Why would he have to change schools? Generally speaking, they would not um, if they had transportation and the, 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 the parent had the, the, the wherewithal to assure that they could stay in the school they're in. Um, frequently, when housing is lost, um, you will move to either a, the, the uh, ev evicted tenant will move to either homeless shelter, they will, um, I think the term, a couch surf with a family member, or come up with another, res uh, another place to live which is far away from that original school. And um, the Cleveland Municipal School District will tell you that um, the, the, the transient nature of, of kids is one of the biggest challenges that the district faces. And it's very hard for that child to learn, and it's very hard for that, the teacher in the classroom to teach that child, um, and it, it, it just really disrupts the, the orderly you know, education of children in our system. So one of the points I wanted to raise in the book Evicted, um, there's a whole chapter that's spent on disposable ties. Um, so when I was growing up, and I mentioned I had a lot of different addresses growing up, but we had a very close-knit neighborhood, and when something bad happened or some, you, a job change, whatever, and you had to move, you had friends, family, neighbors. They stuck together. Their community really was your village. Um, Disposable Ties really talks about how um, families use up their relationships, and it talks about how they go get a little money here, get a little money there. That doesn't work, and they've spent it, and now they have to go someplace else. So they're moving out of the neighborhoods completely because they've spent all their disposable ties in that one neighborhood. Um, and that's where families have to move. They're moving from not just one block to another block. They're moving out of entire districts and out of, into different neighborhoods, and that's the challenge. And these young children suffer the consequence of that challenge. So um, you know, when you see these kids growing up who don't have that same group of friends, and you're sitting, we have a, a number of uh, high schools here today, um, North Olmsted high school and Maple Heights High School um, who you are around your friends all day but when that changes um, that really changes the face of not seeing those kids grow up and not growing up with your friends and um, we're on the eve of a, a, a death of uh, Steven Hillenberg and I don't I can do that you guys can be my Google table um, okay Google who lives in a pineapple under a tree you all know the answer to that question and um, the, uh, it's fact that you're growing up with your friends and you're sharing your stories about SpongeBob SquarePants and going, and, and going to elementary school, 
And that churning doesn't happen in a lot of uh, different schools. And just a simple, just a more simple answer is that if your family got evicted and you moved out of either North Olmstead or Maple Heights, you would not be able to go to your same school. You would have to go to a different school. Excellent forum so far. Great job, council members, so colleagues, Bricatelli, <laughs> Kelly. Uh, qu question for our, our, our guest from New York City, uh, Matt Zone, and one of the local council members. Uh, many of us are aware that when an eviction happens, it's for an, a variety of reasons. Could you share examples of that the right to counsel program in New York City? What are the lawyers doing to identify other issues that are uh, caused the eviction, helping them with wraparound services. Are there any programs like that that you're doing in New York City? Absolutely, yes. And thank you for bringing that up and recognizing that it's not just a housing issue, but you may have an instance of domestic violence. They could be a victim of a crime, have an immigration issue, uh, be dealing with citizenship, access to social services, education issues. So we in New York City really do have a, a real robust program where you know, our civil legal service providers, our legal aid attorneys, are able to access a number of other resources. And that's very important because while you may take care of that family's home and provide a roof over their head and keep that roof over their head, they still are dealing with an incredible amount of other challenges. So we have uh, different cohorts and different working groups that come together and they really work in an incredible fashion. Uh, it's a circle a circle of holistic services and really wraparound services that provide the assistance. So if you have a client that comes in, they have an immigration issue, and you're dealing with their eviction, and you're identifying potential opportunities to pay the back rent or whatever that case is about, you will reach out to someone to help with the immigration, or if it's a victim of a crime, I mean, depending on the level and the type of issue, we do have a, a robust program where you are able to help with wraparound services, and that is very key. Well, how many council members do you have in the room right now? Like, do we have a quorum? Do we, do we have, if you have a quorum, <laughs> quorum, can we pass this bill right now? I mean, come on. What are we waiting for? <laughs> Just 2% of your 200 million, we get started. <laughs> we don't have quorum. We can't okay, vote on that from New York. But you guys do what you want. Um, I'm Amanda Jamison from North Olmsted High School. These are some of my students to the left and right of me. They don't know I'm going to ask a question, but it's good for them to see. Um, so I'm wondering about getting the word out to tenants and using high schools as a vein for that under, uh, information. Are there like programs sent to like guidance counselors or assemblies created? Um, uh, is social media used at all? I'm, okay, I see sad faces. Um, uh, yeah, those are my questions. Yeah, that was one of the shortcomings uh, that the council, me council members talked about in New York in terms of getting the media out, getting folks to understand um, what is available to them. And we even have that issue even for programs that we do have today, like rent deposit and making sure tenants understand what their, what their rights are. Um, but we are we're pretty resilient. We have an incredible um, mechanism of community development corporations throughout Cleveland. And so we can work with our CDCs. Um, we had a great uh, uh, CDC structure working around code enforcement until the federal government decided that wasn't an okay uh, use of expendable funds. I'm not picking on community development in the back of the room. It wasn't your fault, it was the feds. Um, because we had a voluntary compliance rate of over 50% um, for folks who were cited for violations. Um, but it, that's something that we'll have to work on. Um, high school students uh, working through Boys and Girls Club, 
Um, we're looking at a lot of venues where we can go out and get the word, say, let's, let's make sure we knock on doors, let's make sure we get people that are engaged and know what their rights are. Great idea. Hello. Um, two questions, but before I start, um, my grandparents came through Ellis Island in 1950 after uh, after being in a concentration camp in Germany. So just because this is out there in the ether, you're looking at the grandson of refugees who didn't speak English when they got here. So much love for New York City. Um, I have two questions, they're brief. The first one is to our guests from New York City. Um, do you have any statistics on the counterclaims, the, the uh, potential counterclaims brought forth by the tenant for those who are non-lawyers in the room. Uh, we have an adversarial system. Uh, the complaint has an answer. In that answer, the tenant can raise you know, counterclaims for things like living in a condemned home, not having heat, not having running water, et cetera. Do you have any statistics on recovery on a counterclaim or potential settlement data if that's not non-confidential? And then for our councilman here from Cleveland, do we have any projections on uh, if and when, well not if, when this program is implemented, uh, does council have any projections on the potential uh, um, upticks in voluntary compliance with uh, landlord obligations under Ohio law, such as you know safe, fit, habitable, lead safe, Etc. Okay, well, uh, I'm not a lawyer, I just play one on TV. So, uh, I, 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 yes, but um, I think what you identified is, is the heart of, of, of the argument that attorneys are making for the tenants in New York that they're representing because in a, in a shockingly high number of cases, the landlord is not providing mandated services, heat, hot water, cooking gas, etc. Um, and, and one of the reasons why uh, we have an 84% rate of tenants staying in their home is uh, that the landlord is found to be not living up to their legal obligations. So this, I don't have a stat for you, but one of the, one of the benefits of this is then the landlord's gonna be more likely to fix the underlying problem, which is really what we want. We do want the tenant to have, I think that's what you're getting at. They do need to get hot water. They do need cooking gas. And, and, and pest control and all that. So this should, and we believe already is, gonna increase the quality of the housing. It's just, it's part of the benefit of, of leveling the playing field in housing court, because this is where we've been fighting out these issues, and when one side didn't have a lawyer, then the landlords are walking away without having to fix anything. So that's a, a really important point to make um, this should, and we believe in New York, is already going to increase the quality of housing for low-income people. Two quick things I want to add. Um, a lot of the work we're also doing is to try to be preventative. So even before an eviction happens, we want landlords to do better, but we also want tenants to do better as well. So a lot of the work we do at the grassroots level is based on tenant organizing. So we organize in buildings and dwellings, and we educate tenants on their rights, what you should expect from your landlord, but what you also should be entitled to as a tenant paying your rent on time and things of that nature. And then we also help a lot of landlords and it's you know not as robust as we would like it to be because 
there's always a lot of resistance on the efforts that we try to implement through the legislative process. But we have codified a number of different, you know, laws related to bed bugs and rodent infestation and extermination services, lead-based paint, to make sure that landlords are doing better. There are inspections and annual reports so that we don't have to have an eruption of tenants saying we have bed bugs, but no one's ever tested or done things that they're supposed to do. So we're trying to look at, you know, both angles from the landlord perspective as well as tenants and do preventative work so that we don't have to have an eviction or some sort of an HP action, a holdover proceeding that even uh, forces a landlord to do work that they should have done in the first place. And we don't have, um, you know, it's too early in the process to give any projections of what numbers, but just looking at the New York City example, um, the fact that filings, eviction filings are down, the fact that, um, that you know, they are successful in, in preventing eviction over 80% of the cases, our local experience with what happens with voluntary compliance uh, and working with building housing, I think all those indicate that um, just having something in place just will, will, will cause behavior to change. Thank you, Andrew Torres, I'm a paralegal at Legal Aid. Um, it's so great to hear the work that's going on in uh, advancing this issue of giving people, poor people, vulnerable people, uh, right to counsel in eviction cases. Uh, I'm curious though, I think uh, it sounds like most of the panel, uh, if not all the panel agrees, uh, that really uh, the issue is uh, human right uh, to housing. That is that all individuals, regardless of ability to pay, regardless of citizenship status, have a, a right to housing because of their humanity. And I'm curious uh, why you think um, there's been barriers or what are the barriers to trying to legislate uh, human right to housing? Well, what a powerful question. Um, and, and, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think together with healthcare, uh, freedom of speech, and that's something you care a lot about at the City Club, that a right to housing, a right to shelter is a fundamental human right. And um, the United States is way behind uh, countries of our wealth in guaranteeing that right. And um, Tony already referenced this book, but uh, if anyone in this room has not yet read it, go out and buy a copy. And one of the points that Matt Desmond, the author, makes very powerfully is, you know, anybody who qualifies for veteran benefits in this country, they get it. Anybody who qualifies for Social Security in this country, they get it. But a low-income person who might, based on income, qualify for a voucher like Section 8, there's a waiting list. And probably we're only providing housing vouchers to 25% of the people who would qualify for it. And he calculates that we could give a housing voucher like a Section 8 to every person in America who qualifies for that kind of housing support for about $40 billion a year. That's nationally, okay? Uh, this is out of a budget of, of uh, I think it's approaching $4 trillion at this point. So that, that's a rounding error on, an, on our national budget. And it's simply unconscionable that we're not taking that step. And I do think that the next great national effort in, in housing justice, after we get right to council, really needs to be uh, a guaranteed right to a housing voucher for everyone who qualifies. And, and that will just, uh, that will change the landscape of housing in America. And, and we'll, we'll come back to Cleveland for that fight too, if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, 
if, and, I, and I could add, I mean, I, uh, we work very closely with the third, uh, with third Federal Savings and the Third Federal Foundation. They put together this amazing uh, uh, example of how partnerships come together through our P16 initiative, and they've done a great job of, of helping identify the issues we're facing around families and helping work with families get through all their years of education. Um, and uh, what's interesting is um, working very closely with uh, Mark Stefanski, the CEO of Third Federal, one of the things he, he told me during the foreclosure crisis is we can't regulate morality, and that's the toughest issue we face. Um, if somebody wants to do wrong, if somebody wants to stay below the radar, um, that's the challenge. Um, and the book evicted outlines that there's good money in the hood, and um, trying to regulate morality is the true challenge. Um, yet on a national level, um, as you mentioned, uh, uh, just look at many folks here uh, are on welfare. Only we don't call it welfare, we call it a mortgage deduction. Um, and we have, we have mortgages, and for whatever reason, we get to deduct part of our mortgage deduction interest um, every year. Why that's there? But if you took that, I, what did he value that at? Uh, uh, 140, or whatever, millions and millions of dollars, $140 million that, uh, um, in that state that they could uh, save by taking that deduction and then moving it over to provide affordable housing for many families. So um, we have to be careful on what our national agenda is, but we know we can fix this. And on that note, we're going to have to say... That's the forum. <laughs> Please give our panelists a big round of applause. <laughs>Today we've been discussing the right to counsel in housing cases as a solution to the widespread eviction problem. With us are New York City Council members Vanessa Gilpson and Mark Levine, along with City, Cleveland City Council members Anthony Brancatelli and Cleveland City President, Council President Kevin Kelly. Today's forum is the annual Peter DeLeon Endowment Forum on local politics made possible by a generous gift from Peter DeLeon. We appreciate his support. The community partners for today's forum are the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland and Slavic Village. Our hospitality partner is the Metropolitan and the Nine Hotel. We appreciate your partnership. Additionally, we welcome guests at tables hosted by the City Club or the City of Cleveland Department of Community Development, Cleveland Municipal Court Housing Division, and the Sisters of Charity Foundation of Cleveland. We welcome students from Maple Heights High School and North Olmsted High School. Support for student participation in City Club forums comes from KeyBank and the William M. Weiss Foundation with additional support from the donors you'll find listed in today's program. We thank you all for being here today. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you to all our panel today, and this we are adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.